This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. G'day, this is Leon Logan-Nathan. Welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. With me, my co-host... Peter Gowers. Good evening, my friend. Good evening to you, Pete. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Got the what fire you... going again tonight. Yeah, what did you have for dinner? Um... Spaghetti bolognese, actually. A good Australian meal. A good Australian meal. You know, my son has been craving that uh, dish for the last three days. He's been giving me a lot of grief, so we're going to have that tomorrow, I think. Mm. Well, um, it's one of Fiona's specialties. Oh, really? So Mm. she doesn't do it out of a jar? Doesn't do it out of a jar. No, actually, um, this, this thing, this meat cures all day. The, the oven goes on at about lunchtime and for about six, seven, eight hours, all this magical stuff happens and this beautiful bolognese comes out hours and hours later. Mate, that sounds like a lot of hard work for a very mm. simple, a supposedly simple dish. It's, it's not very <laughs> difficult for me. <laughs> like like me uh, recording this podcast or producing it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Something like that, yes. Right, right. Well, mate, uh, look, it, it, I am really pleased uh, to be able to uh, introduce our special guest on the podcast today. Uh, her name is Antonia Tor. I met Antonia for the first time in Singapore last year, I believe at the same time as you, mate. Yeah, well, that's where I met. I thought you must have met earlier. No, no. that was uh, Antonia was given a very special pass to leave London and come to Singapore because it's not often that uh, an LAW member from outside the region goes to a, a meeting outside their region. Yeah, so, uh, well, that wasn't lost on me. I just assumed that because law firms are clearly charging too much that international flights to any destination were uh, absolutely kosher. Right, right, right. Well, uh, yeah, so uh, Antonia is uh, a lawyer with Howard Kennedy and Howard Kennedy is one of our LAW members or is our LAW member in London. And so, uh, with great pleasure and fanfare, Antonia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a bit nervous. It's my first podcast, so. Well, you, you'll be a natural. You'll well. be you'll be a natural after five minutes, Antonia, knowing what I know about you. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so tell me, um, your uh, well, we want to start, Antonia. We always like to start oh. our podcasts with a story, and. And uh, the story is the story of where you were born and where you grew up and how you came to be where you are now. So can you tell us in 10 minutes or less? Gosh. Oh, <laughs> 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm a lawyer. I should be able to do it, shouldn't I? Um, so, yes, I was, I was born in uh, Barnsley, uh, South Yorkshire, um, which is known for being a, a mining farming area um, and I was born into a mining family actually so um, my some members of my family uh, work in the butcher's trade uh, but my great uncle is uh, a man called Arthur Scargill and he was uh, at one point president of the miners union and was involved in going up against Margaret Thatcher when it came to closing down the mines um, but I was I was born just as the mines were were closing down. So so my folks uh, very quickly up sticks and, and moved to South Africa. So I moved to South Africa when I was a, a wee baby. Um, How old were and you then when you moved. Oh, I must have been eighteen months old. Oh, okay. I reckon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't I don't have any uh, young memories uh, at all of of England. Um, <coughs> We, we spent the next 15 years moving around Africa, working at different mine sites. Um, I then did an, a year in Australia. Uh, I lived in Perth for a year. Um, and then How we old went were you then? to Canada. I would have been 16 when I went to Australia. So I did my second to last year of high school in, in Australia. And, and where in Perth wow. was that? So we lived in uh, North Perth, in, um, just across the, the river from where the the CBD area is, yeah. um, but I actually went to school uh, in South Beach, Perth, because that was the only IB school that they had in 
in Perth. Mm. So that's where I went to do my my IB, um, okay, which so actually ended up becoming AP in the end. Had you done that pr- prior to that? Is that why you continued with IB in Australia? Yeah, yeah. So um, when I was, before we moved to Australia, I lived in Tanzania uh, with my, my family and went to an American school. So mm. that was a, an IB school, but I wasn't actually doing the IB program yet at that point. I was doing something called the MYP program, which is the build-up to, to, to IB. Mm. And um, something that my folks always had at the back of their mind was that I was going to go back to the UK for university. So they needed something where, you know, my grades would be recognised, you know, mm. from all these different countries that I studied in. Um, and the best way to do that was was IB. So, yeah. um, so I ended up going into the IB program. Mm. So South Africa... Um, mm. Where, where in South Africa did you live? Uh, okay, so we lived in Joburg, Cape Town, Pretoria, Port Elizabeth, Bloemfontein, Ramfontein, Durban, uh, oh. and Wittbank. Yeah. Did, did the FBI catch up with you eventually? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there was a, a shootout uh, outside Mexico City, but we, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so you were what fifteen or fifteen when you or sixteen when you left South Africa to come to Perth? Uh, so I was in South Africa until the age of about ten, right. uh, eleven, and then we moved to Botswana, um, which is just above South Africa. Um, and my brother was born in Botswana, uh, and then we moved back to England for about four months and then that was according to my mother that was four months too too long so we moved back out to Africa and we were in Ghana at that point we were there for about three years and then we went to Tanzania and did two years in Tanzania so we kind of ping-ponged around southwest and east Africa. And so you have spent pretty much well all of your formative years with the exception of 18 Mm -hmm. months outside the UK Yet you yeah. sound like a, you know, born and bred yeah. English person. So how how is that? Um, it's it's it is a bit weird actually. When 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 the family, when me and my folks and my brother, when we go through passport control as a family, we 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 do look like a smuggler's family because <laughs> my my brother sounds like a Canadian, like he's just got off the boat from Canada, really thick Canadian accent. I sound what could be loosely described as a posh south you know england accent my mum's yorkshire and my dad's a scouser so (laughs) so we all sound very weird um but what's my my friends always say to me that i always mimic the accents that i'm talking to so by the end of this podcast (laughs) (laughs) he'll be dropping f-bombs and saying g'day (laughs) (laughs) so it'll all come out (laughs) <laughs> right. What an interesting, what an interesting childhood you would have had. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what what was it like? I mean, you know, all those different places in South Africa. And, and look, yeah. I mean, this is it's going to date you, but that's okay. Like, what <laughs> what decade are we talking about here? Just so I want to know from an apartheid perspective. That's all. Yeah. So so we we moved out to South Africa right as apartheid ended. Um, probably actually about six months before. So apartheid officially ended in 19, I think it was 89, and Mandela was released in 1990. And we were there prior to Mandela being released. Um, And I don't have many memories of of that time. I just kind of have the stories that I've been told by my mum. But it it was quite a tough time, actually, to be a foreigner, in mm. South Africa and, and a white foreigner at, at that. And my family is quite liberal. Um, they are, they, my, my parents were definitely ahead of their time in terms of uh, equality and diversity and, and appreciating different cultures. Um, and I think that made us stick out quite a, quite a lot. Um, and it was often a conversation how my dad probably didn't progress as far into the company as he might do normally because he didn't hold the same views as mm. the, the main body of, of South Africans that, that he worked with. Um, and, yeah, so, so I don't actually have many fond memories of South Africa. I, I remember it being a very difficult, very tense time. Um, but then when we moved out of South Africa, we moved to Botswana, um, I just I just have incredibly happy memories of just 
incredibly culturally rich people with that are just so happy and just so you know this real sense of community and culture um which i've not really experienced in in the uk uh since coming back to live here permanently so so i i loved it i loved meeting new people interestingly my brother didn't um mm. so my brother is uh, about eight years younger than me and it when we moved to tanzania um i remember there being a conversation around the family dinner table about um you know what john was going to do at the weekend and he said oh i'm not not, not going to do anything and, and my parents were like why don't go, don't go to your friend's house and his honest response was what's the point of making friends we're going to move in two years time because mm. we always moved every yep. two or three years right. so when we moved to australia australia was supposed to be the final move that was we're not going to leave australia you know antonio mm. might go to university john might go to university mm. but the family will stay in australia um, and then we lasted a year <laughs> and then we mm. moved to Canada. Um, but then Canada was the final move. I left Canada after a year because I had to go to university, but my folks stayed out there for about six years and my brother finished his high school in Canada. So where, where um, in Canada was that? That was Vancouver. Oh, lovely. That beautiful Vancouver. It was beautiful. Mm. Right, right. And so you only spent a year in Perth, so you didn't really mm. get to sort of really appreciate it as, as much that that's my biggest regret and I think the same for my parents is that when we were in Australia we didn't see any other part of Australia apart from Perth mm. we didn't get to visit anywhere um, because we would we literally we got there in September and we were out probably wasn't even a year we were out in July the next mm. year um, well, why to, was it so quick on. Antonia um, so my dad worked for at that time he worked for Rio Tinto um canadian company and mm. he was responsible for their asia operations so they had a big gold deposit in mongolia which is why we were based out in perth um and basically the they you know he got promoted uh, so it was a great story he got promoted um but part of the promotion was we want you in hq in vancouver so mm. uh so rio tinto is a canadian company is it yeah, I, it was, was at the time. Yeah, right. yeah. We we I think we always claimed it, didn't we? But uh, <laughs> <they're>, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like a lot of companies. Hey, um, just just on that, I know we touched on it somewhat, but when you turned up to uh, Perth as a mm. sixteen-year-old or thereabouts, mm. what what was the accent like at that time? Um, I had quite a thick uh, Eastern African accent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, okay. And uh, so Tanzania is kind of a mixture of Swahili and Arabic influences. Wow. So I had quite a, uh, an abrupt mannerism about yeah. me. It's probably fair to say. <laughs> could you, could you speak bit, those languages at all? Um, I, I can speak a little bit of Swahili still. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can speak a little bit of Arabic. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things where I used to speak fluent Afrikaans. Um, oh, wow. But I, I, you know, I've kind of lost it. But interestingly, when I speak to our LAW members in the Netherlands or in Germany, I, I can pick up. If they speak slow yeah. enough, I can pick it up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting how quickly you go back into it. Well, I've never met anyone that has spent any amount of time in Botswana. Uh, and, you know, when, it's, when, it, when you go to places, a country, continents like Africa and yeah. South America, that's when I, I don't know about you, Pete, but that's when my geography starts to become a little bit shaky. Uh, yes. Well, my son brought his iPad over to me a few days ago and we had to do a exercise for school and we had to put the animals from <laughs> the regions that they came from. And I'll tell you what, without any, any country names or city names on those maps, I was like, all right, well, that's Africa. Oh, hang on, no, that's Africa. That's, uh, I know that's Australia. Oh, hang on, is that North? Uh, yeah, so it, I know exactly where you're coming from. I don't know if you remember, you don't, I know you don't watch the news, Pete, but Antonia, you may know this, but um, there was a bit of a spat in the US a couple, uh, maybe a couple of months ago when um, uh, some lady from the National Public Radio was uh, quizzing Mike, Mike Pompeo about something. 
uh, and he just lost the plot. And he took her to another room and he showed her a map of, of Europe and asked her to point out where Ukraine was. And he said he was recording this and he was going to show everybody how dumb she was. Uh, and, and she pointed it out. You know, it, it was a map which had no borders or anything. Mm. <laughs> so, and I thought to myself, I would have been sweating bullets if that was me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Botswana is a landlocked country. What's, uh-huh. uh, and I've just learned that the capital city of Botswana is Gaborone. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep, Gaborone. Yep. Gaborone. Right. I did not know that. So, so what, tell us something about that place. I'm always interested in this sort of thing. So Botswana, um, I'd say, is, a, is, is an incredibly beautiful country. Um, it's quite similar to South Africa in terms of just sort of the geography and the layout of it. Um, but the people are just, uh, you know, so, so much friendlier. And we lived in a mining town called Salibi Pikwi, which is on the border between Uh, Botswana in Zimbabwe and um, Botswana is known for having these incredible mangrove swamps uh, which have have got these really rare uh, mangrove trees Um, and and they are protected areas. Um, I guess one other bit about Botswana which is um, unusual slightly is that it does actually have hunting um, parks or hunting concessions Mm which um, in the current sort of day and age that, we, that we're in is, is still quite unusual because most of Africa um, tends to lean towards conservation. Um, but in Botswana, there are, well, la- last time I was speaking to somebody from Botswana, there are still at least two major parks where you could get hunting licenses and you, and you could go hunting. And, and one of those parks, I think, goes into Zimbabwe a little bit. Yeah. So there's probably a fair degree of illegal hunting going on in Zimbabwe once you cross the border. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful country, really beautiful country. So Zimbabwe in South Africa, we know because of cricket, right? And we know that there's a, there's a European, uh, well, obviously very strong European influence, um, South Africa being British and then Dutch, uh, Zimbabwe being British. I don't think there was anyone before, before the Brits there. Namibia, is, is, I'm going to say German, is it, or had some sort of yeah. German, right? German and Dutch, I'd say, Dutch. yeah. What, what, what's Botswana? What's, the, what's their claim to fame? Botswana, I think, was originally um, Portuguese, German, and it was, it was, an, it was a medley of the, of the old Africana um, uh, people that, that settled there. So the old settlers. So it is a mixture of, of German, Dutch, there's a bit of Portuguese as well. Um, but again, Botswana is probably, relatively speaking, compared to those countries that you just mentioned, um, that kind of bracket Botswana, Botswana is probably quite a poor country, comparatively speaking. In terms of national resources, they've not got as much copper or gold or nickel as those three countries have. And they're not known for being a tourist destination, which is another reason why the hunting licenses are still available um, so right. widely and easily in Botswana. Um, it's got quite an, an arid landscape as well. So farming there is quite difficult. So agriculture is, is, is quite tricky. Um, so it's, like I say, when, when you think of the wealth that surrounds Botswana, it is quite a poor country in comparison. Um, but, yeah. So you left South Africa, you came to Perth, you were there for a year. You said you went to a school in South Beach, and I, I am from Perth, and I am scratching my head trying to think. She may, have been, in, she may have been in Florida at the time. So <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> I, I'm going to say, did you mean South Perth, perhaps? Because I, well, I it was the, the beach that was near there was also called City Beach. It was about, oh, it took me an hour and 25 yeah. minutes to get to school every day. What? And I had to get, I had to get, 
from from where we were in Perth, where we lived, yeah. I had to get a, a bus across the bridge into the city. Yeah. I had to get another bus out of the city um, into the suburbs. And then from the suburbs, a third bus that basically dropped me off at school. Okay. And it was about an hour and 25 minutes each Rio, way. Rio Tinto couldn't have got you some closer digs to, to school? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was very much a last choice on that side. Um, wow. my, my brother had a great commute. He only had to walk three minutes down the road to his school. <laughs> right, right. You may be wow. right. I mean, Cottesloe Beach I know, Scarborough Beach I know, but South Beach, I mean, maybe it's South Fremantle somewhere, I'm not sure. But Okay, well, that's great. So you spent a, a year in Perth. I did not know that about you, Antonia. How about that? Yeah. And then Vancouver. Mm. For your final year of school, mm-hmm. and what was that, that was like? a shock to the system. That was a shock to the system. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? <laughs> well, um, so every single town and school that I had gone to prior to Perth was a mining school. So there were three clubs of kids. You had the mining brats, which was what I was. You had the army brats and then you had the diplomat brats and we all had our little, it was like a weird warped version of Greece where we all had like our own little <laughs> clubs and things that we did. Um, you go to Perth and Perth is, was, was for me, Perth was a huge city. Like yeah. I could not get my head around how big Perth was. Um, but there was still, there's still quite a big mining community there. So you still felt like you were kind of part of a club in in a certain sense. And then we went to Vancouver and Vancouver is even bigger than Perth. And again, it was the, the kind of the change of culture. This was when social media was kind of starting to really pick up. People had MySpace pages and all this kind of stuff. Facebook was starting to become quite big. Um, and it was the first school I went to where you didn't have a school uniform. And that mm. was weird. That was really weird for me. And I was sort of thrown at the age of 17, I was thrown into this culture, which is very similar to American culture in terms of what are you wearing? How do you look? Who do you know? What's your, your, your sort of social status? And how are you displaying that? Um, you know, everyone's in Converse sneakers and I was there wearing you know my dad's hand-me-down Reeboks or something so (laughs) it was it was it was very surreal um and I've also had uh you know again this you know coming from a family who is English we have a very relaxed attitude towards alcohol so it was kind of you know if I wanted to have a glass of wine at dinner I could have a small glass of wine in Canada you don't drink until I think it's 20 or, or 21 um, and so again it was just a, a very jarring experience trying to find myself in a social group um, mm. especially because most of these kids had known each other since they were five years old they'd never left Vancouver they'd all gone through school together mm. whereas every school I'd been to we'd all been to at least 10 previous schools before so we were all in the same boat so that was that was a, a massive learning curve for me Right. So you finished your final year of school in Vancouver. Mm. And then, uh, I mean, so was there consistency because you sort of kept to the IB program that it was all fairly sort of portable? Yeah. Well, so the, the frustrating thing was I did IB in Australia and then uh, there was no IB program available for me in Vancouver because we joined, because we, we didn't come into uh, we didn't know we were moving to Canada until quite late. So getting me placed within an IB school was quite difficult. So then I had to switch to something called advanced placements, which is very closely similar to, to IB. And that basically meant that instead of having to take the normal eight modules that everyone else in high school had to take, I had to take 16 modules o- over the course of the year so that I could get the grades to, to go to university straight away without taking a gap year. So, uh, yeah, that was, again, another shock to the system. Thanks for nothing, <laughs> Mum and Dad. Yeah, exactly. It was a very tense conversation at the family dinner table. <laughs> and, and so you managed to get through all of that, and then you decided, mm-hmm. or your parents 
asked you to go back to the UK? How did that work? Um, yeah, I always had it in my mind that I was going to go back to the UK and study, um, mainly because of the finances of it. You know, as a British citizen, I'm entitled to, to study in the UK and pay what we call home tuition fees, which are significantly lower than international fees. Um, and at the time, I wanted to be a medic. I wanted to go into medicine. Um, I wanted to do something which wouldn't be restricted by jurisdiction, uh, that I could travel the world with. Um, and I think it's still the case now, but the process in the UK is you would apply to six universities. That's the maximum you can apply for. Um, and for medicine, you could not apply to more than three universities. So out of your six, three would be medicine, and then the other three would have to be something else. Um, so I did three medicine and three law. Um, and my thought process very much was, well, law seems fairly respectable and fairly easy, and I think it's a good backup, and it'll keep mom and dad happy. So um, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. Um, and I did my, my college, my university submissions. And because I did my last, you had to provide the last three years of your high school, which were not only in three different countries, but three <laughs> different continents. So <laughs> I got a couple of letters back from the university saying, you know, you've got A-star grades across the board, but, you know, we are aware of the fact that there is um, unconscious markers bias where, you know, when you have a new student, you might be more lenient towards them because they're a new student. And so... Mm. Um, they basically said, apply again next year, take some extra exams and apply again next year um, so that we can see that those results are accurate. Um, and that's what I was going to do. So I, I, you know, I remember it so well. I sort of sauntered into the kitchen and sort of said to my folks, oh, you know what, I think I'm going to take a gap year. Uh, and then I'm going to become a doctor next year. So, uh, yeah, so I'll see you guys later. And my dad just stopped me dead in my tracks. <laughs> it was very much along the lines of, over my dead body, young lady, you're going to university. <laughs> so, uh, so, and I've not looked back since, and, you know. You know, that, you is, that, that is so Asian. I can't understand. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just not used to sit, hearing that from... Uh, from uh, from a European, like what is what is it with your parents? Like why? I don't know. I, I, why would they the, behave my, my like tiger parents? <laughs> <laughs> I think my parents were very much like, no, you're 18, you need to, you know, fly the nest, fly, fly, go. <laughs> but yeah, it was. I, I mean, it was it was a good choice. It was it was probably the right choice considering. Right. So so you ended up doing what? Just you went straight into law. Is that how it worked? Or yeah. What? Yeah, right. so uh, you can go straight, if you know you want to go into law, or if your parents know that you want to go into law, um, you go ahead and do a, a three-year law degree. I, yeah. I actually did a four-year law degree because I got a scholarship to go and do one year in Spain, in Barcelona. Right. Um, so I went and studied European Union law, which is completely useless to me now uh, because <laughs> of Brexit. So that was a good investment. Um, <laughs> And then after you do your, your law degree, you do a, a postgraduate degree to qualify you as an actual lawyer. Right. And so you did your law degree at University of Leicester? That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where you met your husband? Yes. Uh, though not at university. Uh, James uh, was a bookmaker, or he still is a bookmaker, what we call a bookmaker in the UK. So that's somebody who is, uh, takes bets on horses, dogs, that kind of thing. We um, call them and... that too, by the way. Okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't or, sure if the cultural barrier was there or, or not. Or if they don't have a licence, we call them an SP bookmaker. <laughs> <laughs> what does the SP stand for, Pete? I always wanted to ask you after the other one. Starting price. Oh, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So is he, he still a bookmaker? Um, he's, he's a licensed bookmaker, uh, yeah. but he only works on the big festivals like Royal Ascot and, and Cheltenham. So those are week long horse racing festivals. Um, in between that, um, he is a professional poker player. So, uh, yeah. Ah, yes. I remember this discussion in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So does yeah. he know, does, does he know, um, so a number of podcasts ago we had, uh, Oh gosh, I've got a, me a mental blank now. David 
David Helmuth, David Helmuth's yes. parents came to Darwin and we had them on the podcast. Oh, amazing. Right? And they told us, or was it me? I can't remember whether you were on there, Pete. It was oh, you. Okay. Yep. They told me that, uh, <laughs> that David's brother is a professional poker player and like a world champion sort of poker player. Yeah, probably one of the most famous poker players out there. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, Phil Helmuth. Yeah, Phil, right. Absolute, absolute poker legend. And, and so your husband knows him, does he? Uh, well, no, knows him professionally. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't say knows him as a friend. So James knows a lot more of the European uh, poker players because he does the European circuit. So right. he'll go mm. to Spain uh, 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 quite a bit to play. Um, and then also uh, a lot of the UK uh, poker players, they, you know, he's our wedding was pretty much 50% lawyers, 50% <laughs> poker players in terms of guests. That's an interesting mix. <laughs> yeah, so, so it was a bit messy. So, on that, um, mm. because we had a conversation earlier today where it, I hadn't even considered this, but of course, the World Championship of Poker in Vegas is being cancelled this year. So, mm. how, is he, how is he doing his trade now? I guess with online. You can still yeah. operate. Yeah, so there's lots of online uh, poker games available, and actually, it's it's been for him quite a busy time uh, because t to use poker terminology, you've got all these people who don't know how to play poker who are called fish um, <laughs> playing online poker, and he's what you call a shark because uh, he he takes all their money basically. I think I can so, follow that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 all. <laughs> It's not the most complicated. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's just, I, I, it's so, it's as foreign to me as Botswana. Like, I mean, <laughs> how, how does someone have a job that is playing poker? I mean, it, it doesn't even compute for me. I, I can't imagine it. <laughs> It's, um, it was a conversation that we actually had probably about eight, nine years ago where yeah. um, it was uh, over a bottle of wine. Uh, so, you know, alcohol is very much to blame. <laughs> and uh, it, he, he was working on the race course regularly. So he was probably three or four days on the race course. Um, and, it, you know, with, with Internet, it was just getting harder and harder. And the culture around race courses has changed quite a lot in the UK. You know, people used to dress up and would spend the day at the race course and would actually bet with the bookmakers. But now what's happening is, is people are going to the race course and they're betting on the, on the internet, on their smart yeah. devices, because they're getting better prices or they feel as yeah. if that is better value. Um, so it's becoming harder and harder for bookmakers to make a living um, and becoming more and more competitive. So we were talking about, you know, if he could do any job in the world, what would that be? Um, and his honest answer was professional poker player. And up until that point, he'd only been playing socially. Um, so I said, well, we've got no children. We've got no mortgage. If there's ever a time you're going to do it, do it now. Um, thinking that in six months' time he'll have it out of his system and, and that would be that. And uh, eight years later, he's still going, which is great. I'm, I'm so happy that he's got something that he's really passionate about because um, that's the essence of being happy in life, I suppose. It is. Mm. It is. Uh, uh, it's, it's, I, I also lament a little bit about people that are really good at poker uh, and, and things like that because I wonder what they would be doing if they weren't playing poker, you know? Like, mm. would they be solving, for example, uh, theoretical physics issues and, you know, <laughs> uh, complicated mathematical equations? Um, yeah, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that takes us to Sheffield. Uh, sorry, not Sheffield, Leicester. <laughs> sorry, beg your pardon, Leicester. And then you finished your law degree in what? You entered the legal profession? What did you do next? Yes. So I did my law degree in Leicester and then my postgraduate degree, which you have to do to become a, a qualified lawyer, I did in London. So I went to the University of, well, at the time it was called the College of Law, but it's now the University of Law uh, down in London. Um, and I did that part time so that I could still work full time um, in, in, in the law firms. Um, and when I graduated from university in Leicester, it was actually quite a difficult time to get a job because it was right when the global financial crisis hit. Um, so I actually started my legal career as a receptionist um, in a legal aid firm. Um, and 
eventually got promoted uh, through the ranks and got uh, into criminal law and started representing people in criminal law. Um, And then an opportunity came up for me to go work for a criminal law practice in London. And that nicely timed in with when I was doing my postgraduate degree part time. So, um, so yeah, so moved down to London, James followed me down uh, as well. And yeah, then basically sort of worked my way up um, and eventually became an immigration lawyer instead of a criminal lawyer. <laughs> what, how did you do that switch? How did that happen? Um, it was completely accidental. Uh, I'd been at this point, I'd probably been practicing criminal law for about three or four years and it was legal aid criminal law. Um, and you have to be built of a certain character to, to do that for the, for the for your whole life. Um, it's, it's really tough going. Um, you know, I would be getting phone calls from clients at three o'clock in the morning because they've been arrested doing a drug deal or doing this, um, you know, you, uh, I could ale- never allegedly. have a, allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, the number of times that James and I would go out for a meal on a Friday night and I couldn't have a glass of wine or a, which was, which is a big deal for me. Um, because I was on call because I might have somebody in the police station. So, um, and I had, I had two incidents, which sort of, the first one made me think about I needed to leave this area and the second one introduced me to immigration law and the first incident was a client that I never dealt with before um, he didn't have a, a lawyer so I got him through what we call the duty rotor and he had been arrested for uh, ABH assault occasioning bod- actual bodily harm um, which is quite serious um so that's where you've caused breakage to the skin and semi-permanent injuries and what he had done was a bailiff had come to his house to try and seize his van for an outstanding debt and this bailiff was putting a wheel clap on his van and this individual thought that a reasonable response to that was to pick up an angle grinder and take it to the bailiff's face Oh, and the God. only reason why the bailiff wasn't dead was because as he pulled it towards the bailiff, it came out the power socket. <laughs> so, was he Irish? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so wow. so I, I, I get this information and I meet this guy and I'm speaking, to, before you speak to your client, you always ask the custody sergeant, you know, is my client going to get bail? <laughs> and the custody sergeant said, look, he has got, three pages worth of violent offences we're not going to give him bail for this you know he's he's going to have to go to the magistrate's court so i go and meet this guy i'm in the i'm in the cell with him we're on our own we're doing our consultation we get to the end of the consultation and this is all pre-police interview and he says to me so when am i getting out have you got bail and i said to him well actually no the custody sergeant won't agree bail at this time so we're going to have to go to court tomorrow morning and get you out on bail and then what happened this probably all happened in about four seconds but he then flipped the table over he grabbed me by the throat and he and he slammed me up against the wall and he at that point was about to assault me and my back had hit the panic strip in the police oh. cell. So the custody sergeant was in there within seconds and they pinned him down and they carted him off. And quite understandably, I said, I can't act for him. That's the end of that. Mm. Um, and I remember the next day speaking to my law firm at that, at that time, a different law firm to Howard Kennedy. And I said to them, um, we need to blacklist this client because he could come up on our radar again and he does assault um, staff if he doesn't get what he wants. And the pressure within legal aid was so much that the directors weren't willing to blacklist this Mm. client. And um, also even said to me, if I decided to prosecute the client for assault, they would look at that as a sort of gross misconduct uh, on my part because they couldn't become known as the law firm that would wow. do that. So, so when that happened, I, I was like, right, I need to, I need to get out of criminal <laughs> law pretty quick. 
Um, yeah. And it was probably about a month later, I then got a phone call again on duty rotor to say that uh, they had somebody in the police station for facilitating illegal migration, human trafficking. So I've already got in my head a, a stereotype, you know, I'm thinking sort of sex trafficking, drug mules, that kind of thing. I turn up at the police station and I am greeted by a 60-year-old wee little Zimbabwean lady. And what had happened was that in the course of her immigration appeal the previous day, she disclosed that the two-year-old infant that she had with her at the appeal, whom she had claimed was her son, wasn't her son. It was her next-door neighbours. So the judge in that hearing had stopped the case and had said, right, the police need to investigate this because she's taken a child and, and brought them into the UK illegally and it's not her child. So I asked her for instructions and what she told me was that she owned a printing press company and she printed stuff against Mugabe. And eventually Mugabe's thugs came round to the printing press, destroyed it, and then came round to her house uh, to effectively either torture or kill her. And in the process of them torturing her, and they used cigarettes to um, torture her, her next door neighbour ran in to try and save her. And they killed the next door neighbour. Mm. And this, my client knew that the next door neighbour was a single mum. She knew that, that there was a, a three month old baby next door. And in the confusion, she fled and grabbed the baby and then made her way to the UK and had pretended it was her son. So I sat there and I just thought, what on earth is this woman doing in a police cell? Why, why is, how is this happening? And the next curveball was that the interview wasn't even conducted by the police. It was conducted by immigration officials and they had no respect whatsoever for the rule of law. And to me, that's like a red flag to a bull. So I was, I, I was every single sort of stereotype you can think of as a lawyer, you know, objection, you know, overruled, all this kind of stuff. I was throwing it out there. And, and I, I just sort of thought I can't tolerate somebody like this being treated so poorly by the UK government effectively. Um, and then that's when I made the decision. I'm going to be an immigration lawyer. And that's where it went. Wow. Was, it, was, it, was it immigration or human rights that you sort of, I mean, I guess they're sort of... Um, they're quite, in the UK, yeah. they're quite similar, actually. They're, they're, you know, the, the Article 8 sort of right to family and private life, uh, um, which is also effectively tied to your right to reside somewhere. Um, they're very closely embedded within immigration law in the UK. Um, I think in certain jurisdictions they're, they're dealt with quite separately. Um, and I would definitely class myself as a human rights and immigration lawyer. Um, but I, I think in certain jurisdictions they are very separate. Could I have heard that story somewhere before, Antonia? I think I might have told you it in Singapore when, ah. when you made the mistake of sitting next to me and ah. I was like, right, captive audience. <laughs> I'm, I'm like... I'm just, you know, thinking, am I watching that show that I see from the UK from time to time on the illegal immigration people? Because that story was just yeah. ringing too many bells for me. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. you did tell me. Right. Fascinating story. I haven't heard it before and it is fascinating. So how did you go from there to Howard Kennedy? How did you end up in Howard Kennedy? Because Howard so, Kennedy doesn't strike me as a firm that uh, sort of do, does that sort of work. It's, um, it, I probably worked for three other law firms before working at Howard Kennedy. Um, and each of them had a slightly different focus. One law firm was very, they were all immigration only practices. One of them was very boutique and focused on litigation around uh, immigration. So that would be, you know, false imprisonments and all, all, all those kind of things. And then the next law firm was very much corporate immigration so that's bringing in workers uh, and bringing in sponsored individuals and then the third law firm I went to go work for um, the head of the law firm was actually a, a sitting judge so we did all sorts of work nationality asylum um, 
Article 8 family. Um, but the thing is, immigration law in the UK is so incredibly hostile um, and aggressive that you could be a Hong Kong billionaire or you could be a Zimbabwean asylum seeker and you are treated the same, but not in a good way. Mm. Um, and I have had instances where I've had clients who are in the UK, what we call tier one investors, where they've put two million pounds at least into UK government bonds or UK companies. Um, and they get text messages from the Home Office saying, our systems indicate that you're an illegal migrant. You must leave within the next five days, otherwise you will go to prison. And it's this problem of outsourcing immigration that means that it's it, it can come across quite hostile. Now, Howard Kennedy never, never did immigration before I joined them. Um, and they were, I think they, they got to a point where they realised they were sending a lot of this immigration work out to other law firms whenever it came up. Um, and I just happened, I was very lucky. I was just in the right place at the right time. I put in my CV. I went through a gruelling interview process. Um, <laughs> Who was on the panel? <laughs> do, we, do I know anybody there? <laughs> um, Michael Chapelo. Michael oh, Chapelo. Michael's not gruelling. Yeah. My God, he's no. a pussy cat. <laughs> no, my, Michael was very much the, uh, the warm-up act. To, um, I, I, got, I got the managing partner. I got uh, the other members of the management committee as well interviewed me. But I think I went through about four rounds of interview. Oh um, God, so which was British, quite intense. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds yeah. like one IT. Yeah. Um, and that was about four years ago. Um, and then I've been there ever since. Right, right. And so you started the migration practice in Howard Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's right. a, it's a, it's a, they have the best address in London, uh, Pete. I don't know if you know. Well, is it... Um... Buckingham Street? No, it's one. It, the, the, the address is One London Bridge. <laughs> okay. Wow! So you actually, your offices are actually in the bridge, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic, wow. uh, fantastic mm. location. Absolutely fantastic offices, and um, you know, great people. I'm trying to think all the people that I know in Howard Kennedy. Tony, of course. Um, and uh, and Howard Gould and Michael, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and before that, uh, before your time, Martin Davis used to be a partner with Howard Kennedy. Oh yes, yeah, I've heard the name, but I didn't meet him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was he was at one stage the vice chairman of LAW to Chris. Uh, ah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Very good pedigree, very good pedigree. And uh, you, you obviously enjoy the work there and the challenges and all that? Yes. Um, I, I, I mean, the people are, are amazing. And I think that really makes wherever you are in the world, it's all, it's all about the people. Um, and there is this really great sense of camaraderie and this really good banter. You know, we're, we're quite a large firm. I think there's maybe... I think the head count is about 350, 350 people, but it's quite rare that you will walk down the corridor and not know somebody. You know, we actually, we're quite a social firm, um, which for that size is incredible, um, especially in London where it's very, very busy. And I think since we've gone into lockdown in the UK, we've only, you know, encouraged that. So, you know, we have team drinks on a Friday via Zoom, um, and just all these, you know, and it's, it's just great that we still have this family kind of mentality, um, which I hadn't, I'd worked in much smaller firms. I mean, Howard Kennedy's the biggest firm by about 300 people. Um, and yet you didn't have the same kind of uh, community feeling that you do at Howard Kennedy. So I love it. I think it's a great place. Uh, what do you think um, drives that culture? I mean, where does it come from? Um, I think the firm, the firm is a result of quite a, a number of mergers um, over the past, you know, 10 years or so. And I think whenever there's a merger, there is one of two ways in which it will go. Either the biggest part of that merger dictates terms and you, you maintain the old culture and, and the old way of doing things, or you have either equal parties in a merger or you might have just more open-mindedness in, in that merger. And, and the merger is looked at as an opportunity 
to change bad habits or introduce good culture or all these various different things. And I think Howard Kennedy has just never missed an opportunity like that. Um, and I think we've got a great partnership structure um, and the partners are very approachable. That I mean, if I wanted to, I could have a phone call with the managing partner, Craig, and just chat about NFL football because that's our common interest. And, and that's perfectly <laughs> normal. That's absolutely fine. Um, whereas in my previous firms, you only spoke to the managing partner if you're asking for a pay rise or if you're in trouble. So um, it's, you know, both very difficult conversations um, to have. Um, so I just I just think it's it's just the fact that we've got this open door mentality and we're an open plan office as well. So just even physically you know, you are shoulder to shoulder with your colleagues. Um, so let's talk about the open plan right office because yeah. open plan office mm -hmm. is one of the big, really one of the hot button issues at the moment for law firms and, and I think a number mm -hmm. of other places. But um, everything that we're reading at the moment in relation to open plan offices down here in Australia is that it was some harebrained idea by some clown uh, about 10 or 15 years ago that yeah. everybody thought was a, a great idea. And now uh, we're slowly moving away from that back to having offices. Mm. That, that, that's the kind of thing that we're reading here, or at least I, I, I've been exposed to. What? I would kind of agree with that, actually, because I personally hate <laughs> <having offices. laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I do hate open plan offices um, because I think when, when you take people who are used to having offices and you put them in an open plan office, the concept of um, other people's time kind of goes out the window. Um, I mean, the number of times that I've been at my desk sort of typing furiously away. Um, and it, I think it's partly my fault because I'm always in meetings or I, I'm always on a plane or I'm always in court. So if I'm at my desk and my colleagues see me, they do pounce at me <laughs> and kind of, you know, try and try and get in a few minutes. Um, but whenever I'm there, I, you, you know, somebody, there's always these constant interruptions. And for me, it's not, it's not the background noise. I don't mind people on phone calls or anything like that. In fact, I like that because my team sits around me. So if anybody's stressed out or if something's happened with a client, I don't need to wait for that email to come over to say, Antonio, can I talk to you? I, I can hear it. I can go and help. And, and that's great. I love that bit. But it's when you're in your little cubicle and you're trying to power through a witness statement um, and then somebody comes over to talk to you and kind of, you know, along the lines of, so how was your weekend? Um, and, and that's nice, but it's, it's trick. It's a tricky balance because there are times where I'm sat there going, please just go away. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but equally, I love the fact that people can come up and talk to you and that's, that's really nice. So I think it's, it's a tricky one. It is a tricky one, but I'm personally, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I wouldn't do it that way. You could draw on your um, year that you spent in Australia uh, when people came up to you and you could give them a typically Australian response if you're too busy. <laughs> <laughs> Which I won't repeat on yeah. a podcast. <laughs> well, it, Pete, Peter's it, forever trying to turn this podcast from PG into uh, R. <laughs> we've, as, as of so far, we've never yet had to tick that box though, Leon, have we? <laughs> Oh, I'm sure that that little box that says this is only for adults. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, and let's talk a little bit about LAW. When were you exposed to LAW? Um, LAW was probably, I was probably two years into being at Howard Kennedy. Um, so it, it, it took me a good year to really set up the practice and get it to, to where I was happy with it. And then it kind of took another year to, because, uh, well, it took me a year to get it sorted. And then I spent quite a long time developing a five-year business plan on how I was going to then take it further. And then the Brexit vote happened. So then oh. I was like, right, well, that, that goes out the window. Um, so then I had to spend another sort of six, eight months kind of figuring out. And it was actually um, Tony Hunt's uh, M&A uh, partner who's heavily involved in LAW um, who kind of brought me into the LAW family um, and I actually went 
funny enough, I went to quite a few of the European employment group meetings with LAW. Um, and I did those uh, initially before then going to um, the, some of the regional meetings. So I've been to the Singapore regional meeting. Uh, I've been to Munich was the AGM. Um, Milan was a regional meeting. Um, Tony's done all the, the North American ones. Um, and yeah, and, and very much become, the more I've engaged with it, the more um, I've loved it, basically. It's a bit of an addiction now. <laughs> so your, your first trip to, uh, your first LAW trip was to Singapore, which was very mm -hmm. unusual. It was a long way away. Uh, what mm. were your expectations and what, uh, and what did you, you know, I, I guess what, what were your expectations and what was the reality? So I'd actually, because LAW had also had an AGM in London, so I'd met a few people in the London AGM um, at the gala dinner. Oh, yes. And and again, slowly, you know, bits and pieces of work came in through LAW. So I'd made contacts by email. Um, and at that time, and it, and it still is the case, I'd probably say about 45% of our work comes from Asia and the Far East. Um, we've got fluent Mandarin and Cantonese speakers in our team. So we, we do look after that region. Um, and I have done for about 12 years as well. So um, when Singapore came up, Tony, I remember it, we were in the kitchen, Tony kind of sidled up to me and was kind of like, you know, do you fancy going to Singapore? Which out of context kind of made me feel a bit nervous because I wondered where this conversation was going. <laughs> um, and then... And then um, and then he sort of said, oh, the LAW Asia Pacific Regional Meeting is, is in Singapore. Um, and so I said yes. And then when I looked at the dates and I looked at what work I had on at the time, it, it was going to be a fly-in trip. So I flew in Thursday afternoon and we had the Thursday evening drinks. We had Friday day where we had our seminars and our discussions. And then we had Saturday morning where we had our business part of the the meeting and then I flew out at three o'clock on Saturday Gosh. so yeah. I was I was in and out quite quick but it was it was it was great because I got to meet a lot of the people who I only had you know met by email um, and you know got to actually learn quite a lot about how to become a better lawyer I mean you know when 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 Pete did his uh, when you did your SEO um, uh, session um, I think I became an enormous pain in the butt for our SEO people because I came back from Singapore mm. and wrote them this long list of things that they should be doing, um, only to be told very politely that they were kind of already doing those things. Um, <laughs> so, you know, butt out, basically. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think it's it, it's just an incredible... I You know, I think I've referred to it before in the past as just one big family, and, I've, and I think that that's actually how it is. Um, when you meet people, you don't ask them how their work is. You ask them how the family is first and you talk about your holidays. And it's only about two hours in that you start saying, oh, what about things at the firm? And, you know, I think that's a reflection of the relationships. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came, uh, Antonia, because uh, it was a, a real pleasure meeting you in Singapore. And it's been a real pleasure getting to know you uh, over Thank the you. years. And, uh, and it's... It's been an additional pleasure having you on this podcast and learning your story because I know that there are plenty of people out there in LAW land, amongst other places. <laughs> I can assure you there's plenty of Darwin and Northern Territory. And, uh, you know, we even have, what, 17% or 11% or something like that of our listeners are from the US, believe it or not. Mm. Um, uh, and we know they listen because every time we have a conversation with someone and we randomly ask them about the podcast, they say, yes, I heard that. And this is what I learned from that. Uh, I didn't know you knew this person and blah, blah, blah. So um, it's, it's really good. Did you listen? Did you have a chance to listen to Sarah um, Stewart's podcast? I did, yes. Um, I really, and again, you're right, absolutely learning so much about Sarah as well. Um, and, you know, that was, that was just really interesting. And since I've been in lockdown, I've actually been putting your podcasts on and <laughs> in the background because it's it, 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 to give me that open plan ambience. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But um, yeah, no, it's a fantastic podcast. Uh, oh, thank I just you. don't know how you guys have 
the time and the energy. It's, it's incredible. Well, I think it's pretty easy, but Pete tells me it's actually not that easy. <laughs> I think uh, for the record, Antonio, I might say that um, <clears throat> there, there's very few opportunities I get to send Leon up the river. But uh, there we were doing a podcast last week or the week before and someone made a similar statement to you saying, oh, you know, you, you must put a lot of time and effort into it. And Leon just said, oh, no, it's very simple, actually. And I, I thought to myself for a few days afterwards, I won't say anything. And I said, Leon, do you have any idea how long this thing takes me to edit each time we do an episode? <laughs> oh, I had no idea, he said. I thought it was just really easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, Pete is definitely the uh, the brains behind the operation. Uh, I just uh, I just bring the guests along and, uh, you know, have a good time. So, yeah. Um, no, big thanks to Pete. All right. Well, look, you go ahead and have a good day, Antonia. I know it's probably lunchtime for you over there, and um, uh, and uh, and so you've, you've got half a day of work ahead of you. But uh, mm-hmm. it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I've uh, I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.